want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode and all of our Ivory Tower Boiler Room episodes ad-free, head to our Patreon, patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room for $5 a month. You get all of our ad-free episodes, our video interviews, and our bonus episodes. See you there. To begin, there's a lot of different types of feminism, and feminism is a really debated term. So for folks listening who are maybe less aware, there's, you know, Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, anarchist feminism, liberal feminism, radical feminism. There's a lot of debates between people who identify within those categories. Uh, There's trans-inclusive feminism, which I think you know, to be a feminist, trans inclusion is really important. There's anti-racist feminism, anti-carceral feminism, you know, and so whether it's public work or if it's scholarly work, there's these different versions of feminism represented. Hi, I'm interrupting what I know is a riveting discussion because I have to talk to you all about one of our sponsors, Broadview Press. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher for all of your humanities-related book needs. Make sure first that you use an exclusive code they're only giving to us for Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. The code is Ivory Tower, and you get 20% off your broadviewpress.com order. So some of the books you can get, actually, we've had the writers on our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Have you all heard our sound writing episode with doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez? So sound writing, they discuss first, what does that term mean? How do you use digital media projects in the college classroom? Also, how do we interpret and analyze podcast episodes like our very own Ivory Tower Boiler Room? And we break down all of the different podcast genres and just how we're using media in our own lives, and especially if you're teaching media. And we even bring up artificial intelligence, which I know is a hot button issue right now. Also, make sure you listen to Jeffrey, Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock, who talks about being a mad scientist of sorts as a composition scholar. And he talks about what it means to do pop culture research and teaching in the college classroom. Then in the fall, we had Dr. Ann Stevens on to break down what it means to be a literary theorist. And we even play a really fun literary criticism game where Ann uses all of these different theories to approach the Wizard of Oz film. So it's such an enjoyable episode. We love having the Broadview Press sponsor our podcast. And again, Use that code Ivory Tower for 20% off all of your Broadview Press texts. I can't wait to feature a really exciting episode with Broadview Press about the philosophy of sport. So that, stay tuned, is coming up in our summer season. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew, and I am so excited with the guest that I am joined in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Uh, I am here with Dr. Alex Ketchum. I'm going to introduce Alex to you all. Alex is the faculty lecturer of the Institute for Gender Sexuality and Feminist Studies of McGill University. She is the director of the Just Feminist Tech and Scholarship Lab. Her work integrates food, environmental, technological, and gender history. We're going to get into all of that. Uh, She also has two recent books out that I can't wait to talk to her about. One of them is called Engage in Public Scholarship, a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. 
from 2022. And the other is her most recent one, Ingredients for Revolution, A History of American Feminist Restaurants, Cafes, and Coffee Houses. And she also has a new book coming out that is called Recoding Feminisms. So I know she delves into AI and feminist ethics about artificial intelligence. So without further ado, here is Dr. Ketchum. Hi, Alex. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for our conversation today. Yeah, I was so excited that you reached out after our queer history conference experience, which there's been so many who have joined me here from that conference. Um, so yeah, thank you for being part of this extended conversation from the queer history conference. Definitely. As we were talking about a little bit before the recording, it was such a positive experience. It was wonderful. If folks have the opportunity to go in the future, I highly recommend it because there's just a more relaxed kind of vibe at the conference. It brings together, you know, established academics, some of the leaders in the field. It has early career scholars. It has graduate students. It even had undergraduate students. It has people working in public schools and community colleges and people in archives and libraries all coming together and sharing ideas around queer history. And there's not that kind of hierarchy that you see at other conferences. People were eating lunch together, sharing ideas, and really mentoring each other. So it was a really lovely environment to work in and celebrate the amazing queer history work that's being done. Yeah, I mean, you've summed it up so nicely. And what excited me is the independent scholarly focus and that public that in order to understand LGBTQ plus and feminist concerns, it can't come just from the ivory tower. It can't just be an academic discourse. We need to understand what's happening in the public sphere and that those public people were represented and that academics were actually applauding them exactly so rare in a conference space. I mean, I think it's changing. Well, let's start there mm -hmm. because you have published such recent work in your feminist uh, scholarly conversations. In, I mean, can you remind everyone again, when did you receive your PhD, Alex? I finished in 2018. So it was a PhD in history from McGill University with a lot of kind of uh, gender studies, feminist studies stuff, because my master's was a double in history and gender studies. So, okay, you're a recent PhD. Yeah. So you're <laughs> part of the same vein I am, which is being aware of this intersectionality of communication that social media, I mean, I know uh, Alex has a Twitter, has an Instagram, find them in the show notes. Uh, you know, I here we have a TikTok, an Instagram, a Twitter. I'm so public with my Instagram. But a lot of academics are behind privacy on social media. And mm -hmm. I think it, what do you think about that? Do you think it's because they haven't really, it's a generational gap or they're very nervous about privacy, like to understand how they can brand themselves? Yeah, I think there's a few aspects of why people will be private or public with their social media accounts. I think for some of it, it has to do with the labor conditions you're working in. So some folks are really worried about misspeaking or misrepresenting their work or their institutions. And if they're in a position where they have a lot of stability at their workplace, they don't want to jeopardize that. So I'm thinking of long tenured professors or even people that might be going up for tenure soon, right? There's a little bit more of a risk for maybe misspeaking on a social media platform. For a lot of earlier career scholars, uh, many of us are aware that there's basically not many stable jobs out there and that sometimes the only way that we'll actually be able to share our scholarship is on these different social media platforms or other forms of public work. The other reason some scholars go private or private for certain amounts of time, and this is something I talk about in my book, Engage in Public Scholarship, is there is a risk of being trolled or doxxed, especially for women, 
people of color, LGBTQ people, people who exist at multiple identities within the groups I mentioned, right? Marginalized scholars or folks who are working on certain kinds of topics dealing with racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, you're more likely to be trolled or doxxed. And so there's also sometimes safety concerns that people have, which are legitimate because our institutions often don't have strategies in place, protocols in place to support us when that happens. So I really encourage people to do public aspects of their work and share what we're doing outside of the ivory tower. I think it's really important, especially as many of us are at taxpayer funded institutions or our grants are taxpayer funded, right? We want to share this work. We want people to actually be able to use all that amazing stuff that we've created. Um, but at the same time, people have to navigate different safety concerns. So I think there's a lot of dynamics to this. And then also it requires different kinds of skill sets. And I know people can be very dismissive of social media work or other forms of kind of public scholarship, like podcasting and stuff. But like, you actually need to learn how to use these tools, right? Making a podcast, you're going to have to learn recording software, you know, how to interview people. And yes, you can teach yourself those things just the way you taught yourself through your comprehensive exams and writing a dissertation and stuff like that. But, you know, there is an investment in of time that's necessary. Yeah, well, and you also have to learn marketing strategies mm -hmm. for a podcast. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, as this is coming out and premiering, it's been almost three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And I've had to teach, I had a background in marketing from high school and my parents who were in the business field, but, I also have a performing background. I love that extroverted sense of these conversations. I've received a lot of negative comments from anonymous social media accounts. They're always anonymous or they're always people you can't really trace. Um, but again, if I'm putting out a controversial topic, something that I'm really invested in, like you know, what we're coming out with today, there's going to be all different aspects of feminism we're about to get into in the mm -hmm. West, in the US, in, I mean, you're in Canada, but I know Alex told me she's from Southern California. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but I expect if I put out a certain topic, there's going to be different sides. And I'm fine with that because that's what I signed up for. But mm -hmm. um, from my conversation with uh, ben, uh, with his Bad Gaze podcast and his book, uh, he said, you know, some academics are really suited for public scholarly activist voices. Not everyone should have to feel they need to go into that. Like if they feel that they're better suited for more of the anonymous, like them just having their profile at their university. There should mm -hmm. be space for that. But like you've said, is there space for that? I mean, can you really still be the quote unquote traditional academic who publishes and just teaches at your university without the public knowing who you are? Yeah, I think it depends on your field. I think it depends on your research topic. Some topics are easier to communicate about, right? I think that's one of the benefits of being a historian is we tell stories. And so even if people don't have as much of a background in the material, I can usually include people in my work in different components of it. Whereas for some of my friends who are molecular biologists, it's a little harder to connect. But I don't think that it always has to be that you have this big public profile to share your research and work with others. Sometimes it could just be a blog post or a zine or just another way to share some of it, right? It doesn't have to be that your face is on it. It doesn't have to link to personal account, right? I think there's ways that we can have different levels of safety and privacy while also doing public work if that's a concern for you. I know some people don't like having their picture taken, but you can have an avatar, right? Um, Chris Gilliard does amazing work around surveillance and educational technology. And he does a lot of public events, but he always uses an avatar, right? So that's a way that he is um, mitigating some of these safety concerns. And also in his use of avatar, it allows him to bring listeners and people who are in the audience into this space of thinking about, okay, well, what does it mean to have my face in these places, which is part of his research, right? So I think there's different strategies. 
Yeah, no, thank you for that. And like, these are tools that others out there can absorb and use. But what I am so eager to discuss, I mean, everything we've just discussed has been fascinating, <laughs> but your two recent books um, have really, and everyone, I know Alex on her website has a discount code. So, you know, go over to her website in our show notes and your two books, especially, I really want to discuss what you had done with Engage in Public Scholarship first, because okay. um, you really looked into the power dynamics behind feminist concerns. I mean, I know you're really invested in digital spaces, but like this will definitely speak to what I think is the crux of a lot of conversations right now, which is there seems to be. I don't want to say a divide because I don't think it's a divide necessarily. Like maybe that's where you can lambast this or question it. I should say uh, lambast sounds as if you're a feminist satirist, um, <laughs> but that there is a real broad conversation about feminism, quote unquote, say Paris Hilton's new memoir. I mean, I know you sent me, um, I'm thinking of that because I'm listening to her audiobook, uh, but Emily Ratajkowski and her book. Uh, there's Lean In, which I know you sent my way. Um, I had talked about the trouble with white uh, white women and the um, with white women. That's one book that I have had an engagement with by Kyla Schuler. Um, but all of that's to say is there's a lot being published right now, especially in the memoir space with well-known women and their stories. Or even, do you know the YouTube channel Jubilee? Mm, I don't know if I know it. Like, there's a few things called Jubilee, but I'm thinking of more of like celebration of like women in the culinary space Jubilee. So I don't know. Okay, if that's no, the no. You're referencing. It's okay, a, um, it's a digital media space where they do a lot of um, middle ground conversations. Like they'll mm. bring people who are pro feminism and anti feminism and okay. have them talk it out in a round table setting. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think it's fascinating if you are interested in feminist um, issues to hear how the different generations are discussing it from the public. But do you feel that feminism, especially when you were doing your work and trying to find that engaging language, there is a disconnect between what is published or what the public conversation is, like say, take a Paris Hilton or take Lean In compared to what's published behind peer-reviewed articles and paywall material. Yeah, for sure. So to begin, there's a lot of different types of feminism and feminism is a really debated term. So for folks listening who are maybe less aware, there's you know, Marxist feminism, socialist feminism, anarchist feminism, liberal feminism, radical feminism. There's a lot of debates between people who identify within those categories. Uh, there's trans-inclusive feminism, which I think, you know, to be a feminist, trans inclusion is really important. There's anti-racist feminism, anti-carceral feminism, you know, and so whether it's public work or if it's scholarly work, there's these different versions of feminism represented. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. 
Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod breaking the gay code and art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Thomas Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. So you sometimes see this kind of white stream, which is like kind of white mainstream feminism that is in many ways a kind of liberal feminism that purports that, you know, if a few women get to a place of power, I sometimes call it trickle down feminism. There's this sense that we'll have more uh, social justice and sexism will be eradicated if we have a few like women CEOs and like women political leaders. I'm not saying it's not important to have women in positions of power, but that's a kind of limited version of seeing how power works in society. But it's something that a lot of times the media latches onto, and it's often a discourse that's dominated by white women, whether it's in academia or outside of academia. So that's oftentimes this kind of sense of like a girl boss feminism also, right? Like it's this understanding that maybe you can make it to the top in our capitalist society. But there's a lot of feminisms that say like, look, we can't even have a socially just world under capitalism. And we actually have to challenge a lot of the social structures themselves. It's not about winning this race, but making it better for everybody. And that means that you have to address racism. You have to address homophobia. You have to address classism um, and all these different components. And so there's amazing work that's happening outside the academy that is done um, from social justice networks. That's grassroots feminism. That's oftentimes led by women of color, by black feminists, by people who are thinking about big questions around uh, economic structures, carceral structures, uh, are really paying attention to the needs of sex workers, are paying attention to the needs of people of all different uh, gender identities. So there's amazing radical work that is happening. And I'm saying radical in terms of like, a, um, like overturning some of the challenges in society, not just radical feminism. In the academy, we also see a lot of different types of feminism represented. So there can be critiques of a lot of academic work, peer-reviewed articles that are really thinking of feminism in a limited way that is still really focused on the needs of like white middle-class and upper middle-class women. This has been a critique of certain feminist academic work basically since the 1970s when it starts to get published more and more in academia. But you also have amazing scholars who are doing feminist work who are published in amazing journals, uh, who are publishing books that are thinking about the ways that uh, power works, that oppression works, are thinking about these questions again of racism, classism, sexism, um, homophobia, 
transphobia all being intertwined and working in different ways, right? So we oftentimes hear the word intersectionality coined by Crenshaw, Kimberly Crenshaw, a legal scholar in 1989, and that's kind of served as this basis for a lot of feminist work today. And so there's intersectional work inside and outside the academy, and there's non-intersectional work inside and outside the academy. So I don't think it's it's like that academic feminism is more intersectional or work outside of the academy is more intersectional. I think we see these divisions throughout, but what we oftentimes see most represented in popular culture and media and book sales that can sell a lot is that kind of white mainstream girl boss feminism uh, because it's not challenging to capitalist structures. And oftentimes it's celebrity memoirs who are reflecting that kind of feminism in their own lives. Yeah, thank you for laying out all the branches of feminism because I've actually, surprisingly, I didn't know I would be using Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon's anti-porn conversation, but I have in my dissertation, which when you're listening to this, I'm either about to defend my dissertation or have defended, but I think I'm about to defend my dissertation when this comes out. It's in July. So I think this is going to be like one of the last episodes before we go on a break for a little while. Um, but their anti-porn conversations the reason I bring that up is, I mean, Catherine McKinnon has worked, has gone further beyond that, but um, their 1970s type work into the 80s. Um, what's interesting is there's a new book coming out called The Pornography Wars, mm -hmm. which I can't wait to get my hands on. Hopefully I can interview that uh, scholar, but I approach it more from a homoerotic pornography lens and I always felt that anti-porn feminist scholars, quote unquote, again, I'm speaking <laughs> I, in a broad stroke here. Um, I mean, I have a grad certificate in women's gender sexuality studies, Alex. So I don't want to be accused of like not <laughs> highlighting everything, but that's what happens with a public conversation is For we sure. have to paint a certain picture for the listeners uh, who are not all academics, which I love. Thank you for listening. Uh, you all are artists in your own way. And I thought that they always were so laser focused on the straight male image and a straight female image. But when it came to queer bodies, especially queer male bodies, th that was never part of the fabric. Like that's never really discussed about how empowering it is for queer male bodies to see pornography because they don't feel represented. So like I'm using that more as my uh, debate with mm -hmm. them. Uh, but there's been a lot done in gay porn studies. So, yeah, you know, for sure. Um, and I have some of them on the podcast soon. But no, go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just going to say, and yeah, and I mean, in addition to, I mean, I don't, I am not aware of this new book coming out about the pornography wars, but there's also, right, it's kind of encapsulated oftentimes as the sex wars and debates within different feminist groups in that time period about what does sex work mean, uh, right? It was really important, uh, the coining of the term sex work to recognize it as work, but that itself was also contested. Uh, for folks who end up looking into kind of feminist history, one of the things that you see throughout is that debate is ongoing and there's not always agreement in how to create a more socially just world without patriarchy, right? And so uh, what's interesting too in my research is because I look at people who called themselves feminist and called their businesses feminist in my feminist restaurant book because I didn't want to be prescriptive in ideas of what is feminism because it's so debated. I have my own definitions and I say it in my work of like what I'm thinking of, but I'm interested in studying people who are invested in situating their work and their projects and themselves within feminism and how they try to embody that because it is so debated. Well, and I feel that when you're talking, what I love about your book um, on feminist restaurants and coffee cafes and, um, you know, these spaces is that a lot of them that I now see in existence, quote, like that I would see as having that they had that feminist um vision have also become such inclusive lgbtq plus spaces like i'm thinking of mm -hmm. even 
Pen and Brush, who we work with here, who is started as a female artist space in the late 1800s in Manhattan to promote female artists, but now has also become a women empowered and LGBTQ plus empowered space or mm -hmm. Blue Stockings Bookstore in Manhattan. Um, I'm thinking a lot of the bookstores because I know more of their history. Housing mm -hmm. um, Works, which was started with um, helping the um, LGBTQ plus community with HIV and AIDS. Um, mm -hmm. And there's even a feminist cafe here on Long Island called Tiger Lily that is also very inclusive of the LGBTQ plus community. So like, is that something you just started to see is there's been this expansive view of what it means to yeah, be a feminist I'm, space? Yeah. I mean, like even in the, the 1970s, so my book Ingredients for Revolution looks from 1972 to 2022, that kind of 50 year period. And most of, not all of them, but most of them were started by lesbian feminists um, or people who maybe later use the title like queer feminists. Um, but at the time, we're usually using lesbian, some in terms of their identities for their sexual orientation and some in this kind of 1970s political lesbianism, which is an identity we don't see as much today, but, to, but is this understanding of lesbian identity as choosing to be a lesbian in a way to enact your feminist values. So there's this phrase at the time, feminism is the theory, lesbianism is the practice. Now, this isn't the way that all feminists saw feminism in the 1970s. You also had very uh, homophobic, anti-lesbian feminists who would call lesbians the lavender menace to the feminist movement. But there was a large investment by lesbians and uh, women who today sometimes identify as queer, like when you interview them later, um, on in creating women-centered space, lesbian-centered space, but using the word feminism to kind of speak to that. And in the 70s and 80s, there is a lot of kind of overlap with lesbian periodicals, feminist periodicals speaking to all these movements. Now, uh, chapter eight of my book speaks about spaces kind of in the 2000s and onward. And so we see shifts generationally between who's starting these spaces so in the 70s and 80s, the restaurants and cafes tended to be founded more by white lesbians, many of whom were Jewish, but not exclusively so, um, from like middle-class backgrounds, but again, not exclusively so, because those were groups that prior to the passage of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, so that was in 1974, so women could get credit in their own name, so it was already really hard to get money to start a business as a woman and then as a lesbian. So if you're also adding racism on top of that, it's just become such a huge barrier. Um, but now we see a lot of uh, queer feminist spaces being founded um, by women of color, black women, Latino women, um, and they tend to be really explicitly trans-inclusive. So there were trans-inclusive spaces that I look at in the 70s and 80s, but now, and there were trans-exclusive ones too. That's a like, sad part of that history. But if you look at ones today, they tend to be way more trans-inclusive. Uh, they tend to be really queer-inclusive, and they tend to be founded by um, a wider diversity of women from different ethnic and racial backgrounds. So there are shifts. Um, there's also shifts in terms of feminism and understandings of gender and understandings of, again, um, different kinds of intersections of power. But queerness and especially lesbian identity was always a really big part of this history. Yeah, well, and I think all of the terms you've laid out, because you have explained and expanded so much upon these 1970s, what I love is you really are such an expert, Alex, on the quote unquote waves of feminism, of even critiquing that whole notion that it's not like one wave happens, the other wave happens. I mean, there's been a lot of work done on the second mm -hmm. wave doesn't just lead to the third wave. Like, and I don't even know what we're in right now. I mean, I don't even... I don't even think we operate under a wave system anymore, right? It's not like this is the fourth wave, is it? LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? 
Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. Do you know that when I'm not delivering an epic Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to you all, that I do actually go on to other podcasts and other interview shows? Well, one show that I really have to tell you all about is called That Old Gay Classic Cinema. I know so many of you here love classic films. You love queer concepts and analyses. So let me just give you a few of the episodes that are on that old gay classic cinema. First, you have to listen to the first ever episode they did where I got to talk about being Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music. So yes, it's an epic Sound of Music episode. There's a Gone with the Wind episode, The Wizard of Oz, Cinderella, 101 Dalmatians, Sleeping Beauty, and most recently, I and Mary DePippi from True Crime and Academia, we were invited onto the Alfred Hitchcock Vertigo episode. So make sure you follow That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Instagram and on TikTok. Christian Garcia, the host, I know that he would really love if you listen to his podcast, follow it on Apple and Spotify, make sure that you rate and review it. And I think I'll definitely be back on that old gay classic cinema, so I'll keep you all updated. But after you finish listening to this current Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode, get your ears on that old gay classic cinema. Enjoy, you all. Yeah, so I mean, the terms of the waves are oftentimes debated. So there was this kind of push into like the 90s um, with Rebecca Walker and uh, Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf. Wolf. Yes, Naomi Wolf. I was like, it's a Campbell Wolf. Campbell no, it's okay. Wolf. It's a, like, and, oh, and yeah, Naomi oh, Wolf. Yeah. Rebecca Walker is Alice yeah. Walker's daughter, or, just yes, for everyone exactly, out there. Yes. Yeah. And so, cause there is kind of, but it doesn't really matter who coined it, but then they're kind of talking about the nineties as being the start of this third wave. Um, but there's issues. And then some folks are like, are we in a fourth wave? Are we not in a fourth wave? I actually tend to reject the wave theory in general, because like, as you're pointing to, right, it doesn't actually speak to the intellectual history of how people build ideas. Ideas don't just come out of nowhere. They're always intertwined with other kinds of movements, other thoughts that are happening at the time. But also the wave theory that we oftentimes see that kind of periodization really focuses on white middle-class and upper middle-class women's experiences in the United States. So the waves don't even transfer into other geographic contexts in the same way. And it also erases a lot of important work by like Chicana farm workers in the United States. A lot of the labor movements that happened in the early to mid 20th century, it really kind of erases different kinds of histories. Because for folks who aren't aware, oftentimes the first wave is seen as ending when uh, the 19th Amendment is passed. Sorry, not the 19th Amendment. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Yes, the 19th Amendment. No, you're right. Uh, when women, yes, uh, morning, early morning, uh, 19th Amendment is passed and women get the right to vote. But of course, not all women got the right to vote at that time. It was about white women getting the right to vote, right? So there were barriers for um, uh, 
Native American Indigenous women to get the right to vote in the United States, for Asian American women to get the right to vote, Black American women, disabled women to get the right to vote, right? So you have all of these different barriers. Also, it's not even people 18, right? It's 21. So it's not all women getting the right to vote. So even that early periodization is really limited to that white uh, center. Yeah, well, um, something that I think you brought, like what you brought us to is so important because it's what's in our culture right now, I think is the language. Like we can't talk about public conversation without talking about the jargon. So, <laughs> I mean, I actually, I love Paris Hilton's memoir. I think it is fascinating, but I also think it's part of a larger conversation. We had on Ebony K. Williams who wrote Bet on Black and talks about black feminism and her own view as a legal scholar, as being the first black real housewife of New York. And she has a whole career in media and Fox News and being the only progressive when she was on her channel, not her channel, but on her show in Fox News, um, that she was kind of always going up against the tokenism idea of her being a mm -hmm. Black woman and how she had to really combat that. Whereas Paris Hilton is pulling the layers back of her trauma. And mm -hmm. I wasn't just the pretty party girl. And there's a lot of depth to Paris Hilton and perhaps um, aspects and skeletons in her family that don't want to come out there, which I think we all, I can say, she doesn't say it, but I'll say here for everyone that the Hiltons have definitely benefited from corporate interest, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, which isn't, I'm not saying it's a negative because that's part of capitalism, but they also have made deals with you know, there's a reason why some of them go to Mar-a-Lago. Like, um, there is a Republican investment. But Paris has opened up in her book about her LGBTQ plus investment of going to clubs and having realized that she was, she doesn't say that she went against her political um, families in interests, but she's starting to kind of veer into how her family, her parents didn't understand the trauma they put her under when she went to this abusive boarding school and that she realized the legal system needs to be changed. And she started to go up against um, children's rights for any abusive system in schooling. And I don't know. I think it's really interesting, Alex, because like Paris is walking this fine line, which is you can tell she wants to call out the political um, conservatism of her family, but she also doesn't because then she puts herself out there to be thrown out in a way, even though she's an adult. So like you can tell she's progressive, but she's not using the language. And is that what you mean in a way about like her white um, privilege, so to speak. Like, even though she is opening up about trauma, there's also a protectiveness that she's being cast as the first influencer. And there's all of this language about her boss attitude. Like, she's entering that phase. Yeah, I mean, okay, so with Paris Hilton or even people uh, like Jessica Simpson's memoir and stuff like that, right? I mean, I think there's been more awareness raised in the kinds of abuse that many celebrities, especially female celebrities, but also like male celebrities and non-binary celebrities have been, have experienced in Hollywood and in the music industry, right? Like that was a huge part of like the Me Too movement, but also in people sharing even if it wasn't a Me Too situation, right? The kinds of like traumas that can happen in these really high pressure exploitative environments, which are main these media industries. Uh, and, you know, people with immense privilege, economic class privilege can also experience hardship, right? It doesn't just because someone has privilege doesn't mean that they're not going to experience violence, right? Just because you have racial or class privilege doesn't mean that you're not going to experience loss, that bad things might not happen to you. But the difference, right, is that bad things aren't happening to you because of your race or because of your class in the same kind of way, right? Um, 
I think that what I'm saying in terms of sometimes with celebrity memoirs is that like to think also maybe of like Caitlyn Jenner also, for example, right? Caitlyn Jenner coming out as trans, um, but also not being fully invested, especially initially on in how her Republican um, politics were also negatively impacting other trans individuals, right? It was very much Caitlyn Jenner's own like personal memoir and kind of story, but also not thinking about, okay, well, how are Black trans women affected how are the like high rates of like violence against the trans community um, like impacted by Republican legislation and stuff like that, right? So um, sometimes I think some of these memoirs can lose sight of the kind of systematic issues that are also impacting other people in uh, these broader communities. Um, but if if this is a story that kind of brings people into initial conversations about thinking about gender or thinking about sexual orientation or thinking about exploitation in different industries. I don't think that's necessarily completely negative, but there has been also a lot of really powerful work done by many activists and artists and people with more marginalized identities. And it's not all uh, of course, it's not just limited to scholarly work. Oftentimes it's not scholarly work. Oftentimes it's also graphic novels and other kinds of memoirs and stuff like that. Uh, but the media will oftentimes, uh, you know, like showcase the work of a celebrity because that's part of celebrity culture. Um, and, you know, this isn't a new phenomenon. There is also kind of like you know, celebrities that got uplifted in the 70s and 80s as well. And that's oftentimes not the most radical work that's coming out. Are you talking about Gloria Steinem? Um, I'm more, I mean, like Gloria Steinem is like a feminist figure that was um, definitely a celebrity within the feminist movement. Uh, but I'm also thinking about just like other kinds of like more popular culture uh, representatives because Gloria Steinem's also been tied to a lot of important feminist causes and started publications, mm -hmm. but also, you know, uh, radical in some ways, not radical in other ways. Uh, so yeah, I, I just mean like this idea of celebrity culture and whose narratives are uplifted. You know, it's also the same thing we can see in other kind of social justice and environmental movements, right? The media picks its media darlings and even some of those media darlings We'll also speak about like, why are you cropping out all the like black activists from this photo? Why are you always putting me in the center of the photo, right? Greta Thunberg has like talked about that many times that why are you putting my face always at the center? There's these amazing indigenous activists, water protectors, there's amazing land back activists, there's amazing uh, folks from all over the world and yet you're like focusing on me, right? So, um, I think part of that just has to do with larger kind of trends within the media, uh, what sells, uh, yeah. Who's the face? Yeah, the yeah. face becomes, that's the celebrity culture, like you said. It's the currency. It's, oh, there's this one person. Like Greta Thunberg is the climate activist. But it's mm -hmm. like Jane Fonda has her Friday climate emergencies. And like someone who I think is so intersectional is Jane Fonda in the sense of working with the activist communities. And like, that's something where I'm impressed by, I don't want you to just have to dwell on Paris Hilton, but I'm impressed with that Paris is connecting to activists because you don't have to start to work in the legal system. Like that to me is the next step. You use your platform to highlight legal issues. And that's something that Laverne Cox, I mean, with her trans activism, she has a talk show now. Um, mm -hmm. I message Alexandra Billings, who is a very influential trans actress. And I know, I think they were part of that series with Caitlyn Jenner and like debated Caitlyn. Um, and yeah, Caitlyn Jenner, that's a whole other episode uh, that I am not qualified to <laughs> discuss. Like, I would really want a uh, a trans actress or someone from the transgender community to speak to that mm -hmm, um, experience. But 
what I think is so important is like the work of Bell Hooks and her transformative pedagogy and mm-hmm. the black feminist work that she had ushered in is like the language of academia, right? You're when you're trained in academia, you pull apart discourse. Like you're expected to start to debate liberal feminism. But for so many in the public, they're not going to pull up those texts. Like they're, I mean, hopefully now they pull up Alex Ketchum's, Dr. Alex Ketchum's text. <laughs> but, you know, that they're, if it's behind academic publishing, it's just harder to find instead of saying their public library and the memoirs are right there on the mm-hmm. shelves. And yeah, they're, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think that speaks to a couple of barriers. I think the one thing I wanted to touch on earlier too, in terms of sharing platforms is, I think a celebrity that does that really well is Lizzo, right? Lizzo was winning that award and what she did with her space was she brought amazing activists onto the stage and highlighted their work and used kind of this idea of like shine theory, right? She's shown a light on all of their work, it linked to people's Instagram handles, like, you know, Lizzo's posts, like, brought people to those organizations' pages, and an amazing job of saying, like, these are actually people whose work we should be celebrating, and so she's someone who's like, I have a platform, how can I use this power to, uh, you know, for the good of more people, right, and so I think that's really important, is she's not having to, uh, like she's using the power that she has to like give other people space and platforms. Now, in terms of the the bit about kind of barriers to access with academic ideas. So Bell Hooks, you know, she has the book, Feminism is for Everybody, right? Her whole point was also to create a lot of work that was accessible to different communities. And I think when we're talking about access, it can mean a lot of different things. So One thing is that for folks who might not be aware, a lot of academic work is behind paywalls. um, And you oftentimes need institutional access or library access to read a lot of peer-reviewed academic articles. There are some ways that you can read some of these pieces through open access. So scholars can pay to make it that their article is available freely, or they can sometimes put a version in an e-repository. So if you look in Google Scholar, sometimes a, like other version that just won't be formatted the same is available freely, or um, may, they might even put like a PDF online, which sometimes isn't super allowed under copyright. Both of my books are also available open access so people can read them freely online. I really don't want there to be paywalls to my work because people might not be aware that Academics don't actually get paid for our journal articles to write them, and the peer reviewers don't get paid, and oftentimes the editors don't even get paid. But also even academic publishing, you know, book sales, a lot of people never even make 20 bucks on their book. So if we're not making money on these things, I think it's really important that people have uh, easy access to them. But access isn't just being able to read something online. First of all, not everyone has access to broadband internet. But access is also the language that we use, the kinds of ideas that we're sharing. And sometimes a free PDF of an article with tons of jargon, that's not like necessarily fully accessible for everyone. Mm-hmm. So we have to share our ideas in other formats, which is why I think things like podcasts are so important and zines can be so important and public events can be so important and websites, you know, different ways that we share our ideas. Um, And that requires different kinds of skill sets as well. I think that there's a danger in setting up always a binary between inside and outside the academy, because a lot of scholars are doing work that is embedded in their activist communities also, you know, and they are, they have a foot in multiple worlds and try to have their work um, available and do labor for those different those different worlds that they're part of, their activist worlds and also their scholarly worlds. Yeah, well, you've inspired all of us, I feel, Alex, with that Thanks. wisdom. <laughs> just because, well, and I think academics, especially the millennials, like those of us, I mean, I'm assuming you're a millennial. So I, I am, shouldn't yeah. assume. I was okay. born in 1990. Okay. Um, I was like, maybe she's a general Zer and is like, just excel that quickly. Um, 
but there's celebrity culture though pop culture does i'm so invested in pop culture just as how it helps inform my own work of like even pulling together um different material like i'm really inspired by jane ward's not gay sex between straight white men and i put it into conversation with whitman like i'm just so invested in all of these different forms of theories coming together mm -hmm. and making my dissertation like what excited me is when my parents said oh we know what your dissertation abstract is like we read it and we understand i said good nice. that means yeah. a publisher like i really want to be published by um you know, a Norton or something like an academic publisher that has a public facing library mm -hmm. uh, publication. So it could be in public libraries. Mm -hmm. um, I could do an audiobook. Like I keep saying we need to academic, like publishers are starting to realize, oh, we need to invest in audiobooks. We need to invest in more of these YouTube channels and understand how influencers are making their mark. And I guess that's where, like you said, with Lizzo, there is that intersection starting to happen. But maybe, you know, like if we can quickly talk about um, what I'm sure is on a lot of people's mind, which is what happened. And I'm, I don't want to throw you, <laughs> put this all on you, Alex, but with, um, I'm trying to remember what the exact cause was in the Oscars. But remember when there was the Me Too um, awareness and they were wearing a ribbon? Was it a ribbon they were wearing? For Harvey Weinstein stuff? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there was a type of PR behind it that was critiqued from like both within Hollywood. I mean, especially I remember Rose McGowan mm -hmm. critiqued what was happening. Like these are some people who actually knew about what was going on and now are just coming out. And, you know, change is really difficult in the entertainment industry in terms, I mean, even in any industry, right? In academic, I mean, academia has its skeletons of sexual harassment. Oh, so many, so many. Know? And the complicit people um, mm -hmm. around it. Like, you know, what do you think of that? Some might accuse them of performative activism. Like, what do you think about performative activism? Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E -E, Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. So I think a few of the critiques that with the Me Too movement, especially at like some of those like galas and red carpet events was, you know, first of all, this term was coined by Tamara Burke, a black feminist activist. Um, yet people paid attention more when Alyssa Milano was like speaking about it. So there was part of that fear of like, oh, people won't care when something's happening to white women or white women with power speaking about it. And then there was, you know, kind of different magazine covers that then highlighted Burke's contributions and stuff like that um, to kind of rectify some of those issues. I think other critiques were, okay, but these are some of the richest people, right? Like, are these the people whose concerns we should care about versus like, 
all the sexual assault and harassment that happens to people, um, like more day-to-day, everyday people, I guess. That was like one of the critiques. Why are we only caring about what happens to celebrities? I think there was a lot of really important discussions that happened out of Me Too. These are people who know how to use the media and the media was paying attention to what they were saying. And it did raise awareness for some folks who weren't previously aware. You're still going to have issues of like classism and like elitism within those kinds of conversations. This question of performative activism, it's something that comes up a lot, especially when we're thinking about social media. We could see this a lot, especially during uh, summer of 2020 around Black Lives Matter. If people remember when people were posting just the plain black square and then activists were like, why are you doing that? That's actually like ruining the hashtag and making it harder to actually organize and share materials, right? There was a lot of folks saying like, okay, we're going to do something and not following through. Um, Performative activism is a tricky one because it does raise awareness, but sometimes it doesn't go past raising awareness, right? I think there's also a lot of pressure for people to make public statements about every social issue that's ongoing, whereas in fact, actually a lot of activist work requires deep roots, time, and investment over the course of months and years, right? And so when people are trying to jump from uh, challenge to challenge, that they're actually oftentimes not able to develop that deep connection with the community towards building change. Um, but again, there is that level of like raising awareness that can be important. I think for folks, it's the question to ask yourself is, am I going to do more than just post this like one thing on my Instagram stories for 24 hours, right? How am I going to change my own habits? But also how am I going to work towards actually larger social change? Because it's not oftentimes just something that you individually need to change, right? That's something that we have in this very like, American and kind of Canadian framework of that everything is the liberal individual in this kind of like neoliberal framework to throw out that word there. But, um, you know, it's about like, okay, what can I do? Some of it's about political change, working with legislators and stuff like that. But some of it is like working in coalitions or importantly, supporting people that have been doing this work for years, but maybe sometimes that organization does need a donation and how can you support them for more than the like five minutes that people are talking about it? Can you set up a recurring donation of like $5 a month that goes to the organization? Like things like that, that kind of show like an ongoing investment, but also people have limited resources. And I do think raising awareness is always important. My concern is just when it ends up raising awareness. Hmm. Oh, that's so nuanced. And I appreciate how you've articulated it, Alex, because it's very difficult. Um, do you have another 10 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah, that's totally fine. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of paying, that's so, such a, <laughs> my capitalist <laughs> heart is coming out. Um, but I lay my cards on the table here. Um, uh, so we have a Patreon and I hope it's okay, Alex, if we head over to our subscriber only section to just talk about more of, I don't want to say private concerns, because I'm sure you would say this on the podcast feed, but maybe more of the obstacles you're facing right now. And because this will be only for subscribers, it gives a certain freedom of saying what's on your mind that isn't as public. Uh, so sure, you know, yeah, I'm happy to because you're also doing a lot of free unpaid labor in doing this podcast, which is well, something thank you. that we're doing as our work too. So um, I hope that the people who are supporting you, your subscribers, also get to benefit. And also um, for folks who um, aren't subscribers, you can also find more of my work and contact me at my social media handles that I'm yes. sure um, will be linked to in the... Um... Yeah, it's in our show notes. Yeah, exactly. and her And Alex's website. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. It's only $5 a month to hear all our bonus episodes and see our video interviews. So, and true crime bonus episodes, if you're a true crime fan. Uh, so I always say it's like, you're just paying for a cup of coffee, which nowadays $5, you're lucky if you get a coffee for $5, especially here in, on Long Island in the New York area. 
Um, and then I add oat milk and then it's like $9. Um, so, um, okay. See you all on Patreon. And I can't wait to just jump right back, Alex, about these obstacles and the artificial intelligence work and just maybe a little more about performative activism since it is so much on our minds. Okay. Sure. See you there, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the executive director. I want you all to follow us on social media because there's so many video clips that we share and so many photos about these episodes. Follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Follow our Facebook page, the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. For $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes, our video interviews, the True Crime and Academia bonus episodes, and all Ivory Tower Boiler Room bonus episodes. Thanks for buying a coffee for me. Thanks, Mary. She's our chief contributor. See you all again in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room.